0: Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Chatham Community Church once again. My name is Jaime, I'm one of the pastors here. And I'm excited to be here. For those of you that don't know, we are one church in two locations, and we also have an online community with us this morning. So welcome those of you who are online once again. And so normally on Sunday mornings, Alex Kirk, who's our lead pastor, is here uh, with this community, and I am down in Pittsburgh with the community that meets at Chatham Mills. But if you can remember way, way, way back, before there was such a thing as COVID-19 and a pandemic, uh, we used to switch. What we did is we would switch every four to six weeks so that y'all would get to see me and Alex would get to see the community down at Pittsburgh. And now that we're back in person at both locations, uh, we decided it's time. It's time to get back to switching. It's time to get back to seeing the community in its entirety. So I'm glad to be with y'all this morning. If you're a guest, whether it's your first time or your first time in a long time, an especially warm welcome to you. I'd love to say hi to you after the service. So I will be just outside those doors under the big welcome sign that's there saying, welcome to Channel Community Church. Come say hi and come back next week because you got to meet Alex. Alex is an amazing character. He's an amazing person to work with and to be friends with. And I'm sure you'll love him just as much as our community does as well. Before I dive into the sermon this morning, I just want to say that I am declaring this the calm before the possible storm. Because rumor has it that Duke won its game last night. And there is a chance that UNC might win theirs today. Now, here's what I want to say. I hear a lot of woos right now. I don't want you to raise your hand, but I know some of you didn't have UNC in your brackets getting this far. <laughs> Y'all are a bunch of fair weather fans. I was talking to someone from that's, that roots for Duke this week, and they said, I have them winning it all the way. And I was like, that's some confidence right there, but that's what it is to be a fan. You go for your team, even when it seems like they have no shot. So uh, if UNC wins today... I think UNC and Duke face each other. Do I have that right? I've never been in North Carolina when UNC and Duke have faced each other during the NCAA tournament. But just so you know, we have plans to bolt down the chairs in here. (laughs) And bar people from wearing blue next week. Just so no one can take offense. No, I'm just kidding. But we're, we're glad for, for this opportunity. And I've just enjoyed seeing y'all as fans of UNC and Duke celebrate your team's success and get excited for this tournament. Uh, have any of you had uh, a, a piece of stone or a piece of gravel fly up while you're driving and hit your windshield? And you have that moment where you wonder how bad is it going to be? How bad is it going to be? How deep is this crack? Do I have to stop? Do I have to stop? The, uh, the car I'm driving currently has cracks in its windshield and in its side view mirror. Not exactly like the ones you're seeing on the screen, but close to that. The cracks on the windshield are minor. They're very small. They're barely noticeable. But the cracks on the side view mirror are so extensive that at night, it's hard for me to see through them. It's hard for me to see what's reflected in them. Now here's the thing, whether the cracks are small or whether they're big, whether they look like the ones on the screen or the ones on my windshield and side view mirror, they all have something in common. They all have a small point of origin. The small point of origin where whatever object impacted the glass, they all have that in common. And no matter how small the crack is from the start, when put under enough Pressure or stress or strain, those cracks will propagate. Those cracks will extend, and if the pressure is enough or if the impact is strong enough, the glass will shatter. The glass will shatter, causing devastation and possibly accidents if you happen to be driving with a windshield that cracks and shatters all of a sudden. But here's the thing. The integrity of the glass is compromised as soon as the stone hits the glass. The integrity of the glass is compromised as soon as the stone hits the glass, no matter how big the crack is. And whether the glass shatters or not, the moment that the object hits the glass, the moment that the object hits the mirror, the glass is fractured. And fractured was not how it was made to be. We are in the second week of a series here at Chatham Community Church that we've called Fractured. The signs that all is not well in our world are all around us and assail us all the time. We see those signs as we look at the events that are happening across the globe and we hurt with our sisters and brothers, particularly in the Ukraine right now. We see the signs even in our community. I was on calls this week with folks from the community who are reeling after recent racist events on one of our schools reminding us that we still have much work to do in order to pass something better on to future generations regarding how we treat those who are different than us. We see the signs that all is not well in our families. We see them in our workplaces. We see them in our schools. We see them in our homes. We even see the signs that all is not well if we look deep and long enough into our own hearts. Though we long for peace, though we long for wholeness, though we long for love, we take actions, we think thoughts, we have inclinations that lead, her, lead us further and further away from all those things and from wholeness. So, through the passages that we'll be studying in this series, what we're going to do is we're going to trace, we're going to, we're going to take those cracks and we're going, to, we're going to take those fractures and we're going to trace them back to the points of origin to the points of impact, so that we can recognize them if and when they show up in us and so that we can address them, lest they lead to further fracturing and shattering in our lives, in our relationship with God, and in our relationship to each other. Now, one of the words that the collections of ancient writings that we call the Scriptures uses to talk about those fractures, to talk about those origins, and even uh, uh, the the inclinations and thoughts and the actions that lead to all this brokenness is the word sin. And I know Alex talked about this last week, but I'm going to say it myself. Sin makes people's hair stand on end when we talk about sin. And that's partly because the church has contributed to the fracturing of our world in the way we've talked about sin. We've often used the topic of sin as a way to control people, as a way to heap guilt and shame on on people. We've used it to bring condemnation among many other things. See, what we've done is we've tried to force people to feel bad about something in order to provoke a reaction, in order to provoke a response instead of trusting that the Holy Spirit will convict people and draw people unto himself. So, if talk of sin has been weaponized against you, if it's been used to control you, if it's been used to shame you, as part of this community of faith, and particularly as a minister, I ask your forgiveness. And I ask that you stick with us during this series because I'll say what I often say when we come across topics that have been mishandled, that the response to topics that have been misused and even abused, it's not disuse, but it's proper use. And that's what we'll attempt to do throughout this series. Because at the end of the day, we have to talk about the fractures. We have to talk about the things that cause breaking in our world because God did not make us to be fractured. God did not make our world to be fractured. God made us to be whole. Now, if you happen to have have access to a Bible, we're going to be in the book of 2 Samuel today. And we're going to be in chapter 11. And don't worry if you don't have a Bible or don't have access to a Bible. We're going to put it on the screen in just a second. And we're going to be looking at a passage, again, 2 Samuel 11, where the magnitude of devastation is significantly high. It's really high. One man stands at the center of all this devastation. And part of the reason why the magnitude of devastation is so high is because this man is a king. And as a king, he has loads of power. He has loads of authority. And so the things that he does in his passage might seem so far out of our ability, so far out of our realm of imagination, out of our agency, that we may be tempted to disconnect We may be tempted to disengage. We may be tempted to say, well, that's a nice cautionary tale. There's nothing in it for me. But I want to say that that's mostly because of the amount of power and authority that this king has. But here's the thing about power and authority. Power and authority just give us opportunity to amplify things that are already in us. They just give us opportunity to amplify They increase the scope of what we can do with the things that are already in us, and that can be for good, or that can be for fracturing, as happens in this passage. Now, I'm not saying that the things that happen in this passage are things that you and I might do, but I think we might find ourselves in the origins of the actions that this man takes. So if you have a Bible, again, we're in 2 Samuel chapter 11, and we'll start in verse 1. Here we go. In the spring... At the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Reba, but David remained in Jerusalem. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful. And David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, she is Bathsheba the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. And David sent messengers to get her. She came to him and he slept with her. Now she was purifying herself from her monthly uncleanness. Then she went back home. The woman conceived and sent word to David saying, I'm pregnant. So David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent him to David. When Uriah came to David, David asked him how Joab was, how the soldiers were, and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. So Uriah left the palace, and a gift from the king was sent after him. But Uriah slept at the entrance of the palace with all his master's servants and did not go down to his home. And David was told Uriah did not go home. So he asked Uriah, haven't you just come From a military campaign, why didn't you go home? And Uriah said to David, the ark and Israel and Judah are staying in tents. And my commander Joab and my Lord's men are camped in the open country. How could I go to my house to eat and drink and make love to my wife? As surely as you live, I will do no such thing. Then David asked him, stay here. David said to him, stay here one more day. And tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. And at David's invitation, he ate and drank with him. And David made him drunk. But in the evening, Uriah went out to sleep on his mat among his master's servants. He did not go home. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it with Uriah. And in it, he wrote, Put Uriah out in front, where the fighting is fiercest. Then withdraw from him so he will be struck down And die. So while Joab had the city under siege, he put Uriah at a place where he knew the strongest defenders were. When the men of the city came out and fought against Joab, some of the men in David's army fell. Moreover, Uriah the Hittite died. I'm going to skip down to the end of the chapter. When Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. And after the time of mourning was over, David had her brought to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. What a heartbreaking passage. The amount of devastation is just almost overwhelming. In fact, if I'm honest with you, this passage builds in me a little bit of rage. It's like when you're reading a book and you get to the point where you're so frustrated in the characters that you want to throw the book across the room. For those of you who are gamers, the term for this is you rage quit. That is how I feel sometimes reading this passage. And the phrase used to close the chapter is both telling and fitting, and at the same time feels almost insufficient. The thing that David had done displeased the Lord. You bet it better have displeased the Lord. It better have done more than displeased the Lord. Lives Have been shattered. So, what exactly did David do? What exactly did David do that displeased the Lord? Well, let's look at it by sections or by chunks and see if we can take those actions, those things that David did, the results of the fracturing, and trace it back to those places of origin, the origins of these devastating fractures that led to shattered lives. We'll start with the marriage of Bathsheba and Uriah. Now, it's unclear if David knew who Bathsheba was before this passage. There are other, way, there are other people that translate this passage and where it says that the person said, this is Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah. It, it translates it as David asking, is this Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah? sort of to indicate that he might have known her, but our translation translates it differently, so it's unclear. But what isn't unclear is that David knows Uriah. David knows Uriah the Hittite because Uriah is part of a group of elite warriors that have been running with David for a long time. In fact, it's such a good group of elite warriors that they're called David's mighty men, and stories are told of them. He'd likely been with David since the conflict that David had with the previous king. So he was with him from before he was sitting on the throne and was still with him there. He was close enough to David to warrant a house near the palace, which meant he was important. And he was trusted enough to lead people to battle on the front lines. And go out to battle, he does. And naturally, his wife stays behind, as one would expect a wife in this time to do, and then David takes a wrecking ball to their lives. David takes a wrecking ball to their lives. See, he sees Bathsheba bathing. He confirms who she is, and then he has her brought to the palace. And I want to pause here to address two issues that come up when studying this passage. There is a tendency of some people when reading this passage or talking about this passage to assign culpability to Bathsheba. About what happens. They either say that she was intentionally trying to seduce David by bathing naked at a time where he was randomly walking around his palace balcony, or or they say that she showed willingness to engage in this relationship by coming to the palace and sleeping with David, and then, after Uriah's death, becoming his wife. The problem is that the text doesn't seem to back that up. The text doesn't seem to support that. See, the language that is used to communicate what David does is language of taking. It is language of taking what you are not entitled to. It's language of taking what does not belong and was never intended for you. David uses his power. David uses his authority for selfish ends. In addition, the text itself actually assigns culpability on two occasions. Right here and in the chapter afterwards. And each time it, lets the, it lays the blame squarely at David's feet. At the end of the passage, it doesn't say, the thing that David and Bathsheba had done displeased the Lord. It says the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Now you might say, well, that's just one sentence. It's a little flimsy. okay the next chapter, the Lord sends a word of rebuke through a prophet. The Lord addresses what happened. And it is without a doubt, in the language used in the words of the prophet, exclusively David's fault. David is exclusively culpable. All the blame lies squarely at his feet, which transitions me to the second point. What do we call what David did to Bathsheba? Now, some would argue that this is a case of adultery. Some would argue that this is a case of adultery. And here we run into the challenge of translations, because all translation is interpretation. So, here's what I'll say. Yes and no. If we use the word adultery as the Hebrew Bible defines adultery, then David committed adultery. However, the definition of adultery in the Hebrew is far broader than what we understand is adultery. We assume certain things when we say adultery that the Bible does not, that the Bible does not. The man with the most power, here's what happens. The man with the most power and authority in the kingdom sends for a woman late at night or in the evening that he clearly wants to sleep with. And he has her brought to his palace where all the signs of his power and authority lie, where he has all the control. Her husband is far away. There is no one to speak up for her. And this is a culture where women need a man to speak up for them. They need a man to stand for them. And so she's brought to this place. And this king has power over their lives. That is obvious based on what happens afterwards. He has the ability and the authority to command their death. I'm not sure Bathsheba had a choice here. I'm not sure she had a choice. Now somebody said, well, she should have run. She should have left. She should have just gone. She should have not given David the opportunity to sleep with her, to take her. What do you think would have happened? More than likely, she would have been killed in order to keep the secret in order to maintain science. And if that would have happened, we would have called that murder, and rightfully so. So then why would we call what ends up happening anything other than sexual assault and rape? Why? He doesn't need to force her physically. He doesn't need to pin her down. All of the power is in his hands. All of the authority is with him. Her life is in his hands. I don't think she was able to consent. So he does that. He assaults her. He rapes her. And she ends up pregnant. And she sends word to him. Here's why because now the issue is life and death for her for real as well. Now she she is in danger of being killed because she is pregnant and it is known that it is not by her husband. Something has to happen. And David uses his power and authority again to try to manipulate the situation so that maybe the impression can be given that Uriah was the one that impregnated her, but his plan fails. And so then there's a problem. Uriah will know that something happened. And Uriah needs to get taken out of the picture. There's a chance that the truth will come out, and so Uriah needs dealing with, and he has him killed. Throughout this passage, David uses both Bathsheba and Uriah. See, in his eyes, they've stopped being people. They have become objects. In his eyes, they have become objects to be used and discarded rather than people to be loved and honored. David has broken the command to love his neighbor. David has failed to see the image of God in them. And that is the origin of the fracture he no longer sees the image of God in them. Bathsheba and Uriah were made in the image of God. They were made with value. They were made with dignity. They were precious. And David fractured his ability to see him in that way. And that enables him to take vile action towards them, to take a wrecking ball to their marriage and to their lives. And here's the thing, we're all prone to that. We're all prone to fracturing our view of the image of God in others. If if that weren't true, there'd be no ageism, there'd be no classism, there'd be no ableism, there'd be no sexism, there'd be no xenophobia, there'd be no racism. When our view of others as made in the image of God is fractured, we do violence to each other in so many ways. Maybe not to the degree that David did, but still. And so it begs the question this morning that I want you to consider. How might our view of the image of God in others be fractured. Think of the folks you disagree with, the folks who think differently than you, the folks who are from a different background, the folks who have a different story as part of their lives. What does your image of them look like? Can you see the image of God in them? Can you see them as valuable, as worthy as people who have dignity? And I want to take a brief pass on a place where I see this coming up over and over again the fracturing of our ability to see the image of God in others. Think of your political opponents. It is heartbreaking for me to hear us say things like, well, if such and such belongs to that political party or supports that candidate, they can't be a Christian. We have made people into our enemies because of political allegiances. Instead of letting ourselves be united by the blood of Christ, we have said that political allegiance is stronger than what Christ did on the cross, and it is heartbreaking. Our images of each other are fractured. How do we come back from that? What does a journey back from a fractured view of the image of God look like? Well, there's a song by a band named The Brilliance that illustrates what this journey might look like. The song is called Brother. And all throughout the song, there's a refrain. It says, when I look into the face of my enemy, I see my brother. Oh, that's good, right? It sounds like a good step. And the refrain repeats and repeats. And then there's verses that talk about the things that might bring us together. the Forgiveness, the wounds that we share, the efforts that we make to heal wounds, the things that we might do. And it keeps going over and over again. When I look into the face of my enemy, I see my brother. And it's hearkening back to a Hebrew practice of singing oneself into belief. You sing the things that you want to be true until they get deeply embedded into your soul. And then towards the end of one recording of the song, as the the supporting singers keep singing that refrain, when I look into the face of my enemy, I see my brother, the lead singer, switches. He says, when I look into the face of my enemy, I see you. I see you. It's like this journey has come to a close and he no longer says enemy. He says, I see my sister. I see my mother. I see my father. And finally, I see my brother. He has come to the point where he has sang it enough that he can no longer identify this person who might've been his opponent as his enemy. The view of the image of God in him for that person has been restored. How many of us might need to sing this type of song to repair our view, our fractured view of the image of God and our political opponents and people who come from different backgrounds of us. What might it have been like if David would have sung this song? How I'd wish he'd taken that journey. But he doesn't. He doesn't. And woven through the rape of Bathsheba and the killing of Uriah is an attempted cover up and David does this to protect his image. Right? He tries to pin the pregnancy on Uriah. When that doesn't work, he sends word to his commander to have Uriah placed in a spot where he will surely be killed in battle and he's willing to sacrifice other men for it anything in order to not be found out. Then the cherry on top of this stinky Sunday and if we weren't in church I'd call it something different. He brings Bathsheba to the palace to the place of a trauma as another one of his wives. Now, there's no indication that Bathsheba knows that David had Uriah killed, but still. And here's the thing, we know what's going on because we've read the story, but imagine what this looks like if you haven't read the story, if you don't know what was happening. The headlines might look like, king cares for pregnant widow of close friend fallen in battle and vows to raise their child As his own. Man, that looks good for David. Not only does he get his cake, but he gets to eat it too. See, the origin point here for David is that he's choosing reputation over character. He's caring more about what people will say about him than what is actually true about him. What is actually true about him. And, folks, that's a dead end path. That's a dead end path that might look good on the outside, but will leave us hollow and ultimately collapsing on the inside. Over and over again, David has opportunities to do the right thing. But instead of taking the off ramp towards repentance, he doubles down on the path again and again and again, each time he has a choice. Do I go further down the hole or do I reach up and climb out into the light? And David's story keeps getting darker and darker and darker. It can be hard to come out into the light when we've sinned. It's tempting to believe that if we just do one more thing or pretend nothing happened just a little bit longer, we'll be in the clear. No one will ever find out. I remember one time a buddy and mine were given money by our moms to go to the movies. We are going to see the movie Crimson Tide, for those of you who can remember that far back. And we got to the movie theater, and next to the movie theater was the arcade. And We thought, you know, this money will go a lot further in the arcade than it will in the movie theater. So we went to the arcade. Spent hours in the arcade, most of them doing nothing, because if you've ever been young in an arcade, you know that money does not last long. But movies do. And we came back and we got in the car and our mom's were like, oh, how was the movie? And we constructed this narrative to say how great the movie was without revealing anything. We get back to the house and my mom comes in the room. It's like, so tell me more about the movie. And I go, oh, it was so good. The acting was great. I so enjoyed it. It was a lot of fun. What I didn't know, and I kept going over and over again. What I didn't know is that my friend had felt guilty ratted me out. No, he came into the light. (laughs) And when given the opportunity to climb into the light or dig the hole deeper, I dug that hole. I took that shovel. And my mom just let me do it. (laughs) Over and over again until she finally told me and I could see the disappointment in her eyes. Not that I'd gone to the arcade. She didn't care. But that I'd lied to her. It's tempting to think that digging the hole deeper will lead to less fracturing, but actually it leads to more. It leads to more. All that digging. The hole is never going to be deep enough for us to hide. It's never going to be deep enough. All it will do is fracture our relationships with God and others to a greater degree. Some of us are in holes right now. You know who you are. You're in a hole right now. Maybe even you've got the shovel in your hand it will never be deep enough. Come into the light. There is freedom and there is healing, even even if it feels scary at first. David has fractured his view of the image of God in others. He's chosen reputation over character. He's dug deeper instead of coming into the light. And there's one more thing that David did that displeased the Lord. It's right at the beginning of the passage. It says that in the time when the kings go out to war, David sends his armies but he stays back in Jerusalem. He doesn't go out with them. And here's the key thing. It's not just David's armies that have gone out. It's the ark of the Lord that's gone out too. The ark of the Lord represents the very presence of God. So you've got this king that's been anointed under very, 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 very providential circumstances by God himself, who has been separated by God, who has seen God pour his favor upon him time and time again, and he lets himself drift from the presence of God. He lets himself go. He abdicates his responsibility of, as a king and he keeps himself from the presence of God. God had called him to this. God had promised to be with him and he opts out and he gets restless and he makes choice after choice and he fractures his life and the lives of others. Now, you and I don't have the power to command armies and I hope we never have the inclination to do the things that David did, but we were all made For connection with God. We were all made to be in His presence. We were all made for a purpose. And if we drift from God's presence, we will stray from His will. It is inevitable, in small and large degrees, if we drift from God's presence. We will stray from his will. Friends, the surest way to heal the fractures in our world is to love God with all our hearts, with all our souls, with all our minds, with all our strengths, and then to let that fuel how we love and bring healing to our world, to, bring, uh, to be in his presence and to follow his path. The story that we read is a tragic story. What is the story that we're writing gonna look like? What is the story that we're writing going to look like. Let's commit today to write a better story. Let's write a better story. Let's write a better story. Let's address the fractures in us so that we can be part of bringing healing and restoration to the fractures in our world. Let's choose integrity. Let's choose character. Let's live in the light. Let's see people in the image of God. Let's stay connected with him. Let's write a better story. Let me pray for us. Gracious God, I hurt with all the people who have been in the path of fractures like the one that started with David. I grieve for the pain that's been caused. And Lord, I pray healing for them. And yet at the same time, I ask, Lord, that you would reveal the places where fractures are originating in our own lives, in my life and the lives of those here who are with me. Lord, call us to you. May we stay in your presence. May we see people as you see them. May we live in the light and may we write a better story. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand and join? and singing.